I'm Tony Perkins, and this is More Than a Game, the podcast that takes you beyond the box score and tells the Arizona sports stories you've never heard. On this episode, we learn about some of Arizona's most extreme endurance sporting events. Joining me in the studio now is the show's producer, Zach Ziegler. Zach, welcome. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to be on this side of the microphone. <laughs> now, I understand you've got some pretty interesting sporting events to tell us about this week. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, Tony, you look like you're a guy who's in pretty good shape. Uh, I know you were a pickup basketball player in your 20s. Do you ever do anything like run, bike, hike, swim, or are you just blessed with good genetics and uh, eat a healthy diet? Well, I tried uh, swimming uh, just yesterday, in fact, uh, 20 laps in the neighborhood pool, and, you know, I... I was able to do the 20 laps, but not all at once. <laughs> so that's about as far as I went as, as as far as endurance goes. So what's the most extreme, you know, what's the most long distance uh, thing you've ever done? You know, run, hiked, bike, swam, anything like that? I've run um, in really a short distance, but it was a long distance to me, about a mile. Uh, and, uh, and that wasn't running all the way. <laughs> so, so you may remember this, uh, years ago, back when you started at AZPM and I was a cub reporter here, I was a distance runner, nothing too extreme. I did some half marathons, you know, some of the obstacle course races like, you know, Tough Mudder or Spartan. I did one that was a pretty fun one. Uh, I ran up Sabino Canyon and back for a race that, that was awesome. Uh, my knee, not so much a fan of it these days, but I really always liked this idea of doing these kind of longer distance things where it would take you a, a couple hours or maybe even a little longer. Yeah, I know what you're talking about as far as uh, as far as knees go. You know, the times that I played pickup basketball is, you know, such quick movement and running and, and jumping. I switched from that to tennis and that got to be a little bit more endurance. Playing tennis matches, uh, especially going three sets, could go an hour and a half or so, and uh, still a lot of uh, a lot of stress and pressure on your joints. Well, Tony, speaking of uh, those knees, I'm I'm going to tell you about a race that when I'm talking about this, it just hearing about it is probably going to make your knees ache a little here. Okay, this is a race that some runners. Uh, told me is probably one of the most extreme ultra marathons in the nation and it takes place right here in Arizona actually and happened just a few weeks back. It's called the Cocodona 250 and it has three distances. The short race is 36 miles. It starts a bit outside of Flagstaff, runs around the perimeter of the city and ends in downtown. Uh, there's also a 125 mile race which starts in Jerome, an old mining town down in Yavapai County, goes through Sedona, then follows that 36-mile route around Flagstaff, and then there's the full race. As the name suggests, it's 250 miles. It starts near Black Canyon City, just a bit north of Phoenix, right around the Maricopa-Yavapai County line. The race goes across the Bradshaw Mountains to the Prescott area over Mingus Mountain before meeting the 125-mile course, so Jerome, Sedona, around Flagstaff. 
what all of these crazy folks are about to embark on uh, over, you know, the next three to five and a half days. Um, now, what you're hearing now is audio from their streaming coverage at the start of the race. Runners started on May 1st at 5 a.m. on the dot. And while I wasn't able to get to the start of the race, I was able to spend a morning at the finish line in downtown Flagstaff. I talked with folks like Steve Adderholt, who's the race manager, about this race. He said while the distances are a big challenge, the bigger one is actually the terrain. The trails are really rocky and rugged. Some of the mountain ranges, especially the Bradshaw Mountains at the beginning of the course, are very remote and rugged. That first day of the race in, through the Bradshaws is the, arguably the crux of the race. It's the hardest section. Uh, that 50K to Crown King is maybe the, one of the hardest 50Ks in the United States. That sounds crazy. Well, is Steve the sadist who came up with this race? <laughs> no, no, actually uh, not. I'll let him answer who came up with this race. So the idea uh, was created by Jamil Curry, the founder of Aero Viper Running. Um, he always had a dream of running from Phoenix, his hometown, to Flagstaff. So Aravipa Running, which you heard Steve mention, is a company that puts together a number of trail run races across Arizona and some into Colorado and Utah. Now, it's not as simple as a starting and finish line for a race this size. He says there's plenty of help along the way for these runners. We have 28 stations. Um, there's a lot of logistics that go into you know, moving all the equipment around. We have 400 volunteers for the race, 40 staff members, so more people working the event than are running the event. So 400 volunteers, more than 400 people working to support how many runners? This year it was about 280 with about 200 finishers. That's a lot of effort. So what do these folks do? Well, for the most part, they're staffing about 20 aid stations that are throughout the course. They're usually about every 10 to 12 miles or so. I talked to a couple of those 400-plus people at the finish line's aid stations, including Jan, who was getting post-race snacks and beverages all set for people who just finished. So I do a lot of the Arrow Viper races. I've done running them. I've done over 50. And uh, my boyfriend does a lot of these crazy long races. So I end up volunteering while he's out there. He's actually running up Eldon Mountain at the moment. So I come out here to help the runners while he's up there. So Jan was volunteering in between stretches where she was crewing for her boyfriend, whom she mentioned in that soundbite. Runners often have friends and family show up to lend support at the aid stations or also pace them. That's when they run beside them at the speed that the runner wants to be going for a while. When I was out there, it was a brisk Friday morning, and Jan said that the hot commodity for finishers was actually hamburgers. Everybody's having a burger for breakfast this morning, so we, we did do breakfast foods, but everybody who comes in just wants a nice meaty burger from us. Now, some people were eating those breakfast foods. Uh, in fact, I saw one runner build a hamburger using pancakes as buns, uh, also put some bacon, eggs, avocado, and maple syrup on top of it. Breakfast of champions there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Now, 
I'm pretty sure that when you've been running for about four days, though, you get to eat however much you want, uh, whatever you want. You, you have earned those calories. All right. Now, speaking of those runners, did you get a chance to talk with any of them? Oh, definitely. I talked to uh, more than a few. One of them was Leo Fung, who had crossed the finish line a few minutes before we chatted. And when he crossed, he and his pacer were wearing paper hats from Waffle House. I just have a penchant for greasy, disgusting American food. Um, so we, we actually ate there the Sunday night before the race. Um, and the waitress was bored on a Sunday night. Told her about our uh, adventure this week, and then she said, uh, hey, you want to rep the brand when you cross the finish line? So I noticed that he called it American food. Yeah, Leo is Canadian. He's from Calgary, Alberta. He was the racer I talked to who traveled the farthest to take part in the Coca-Dona 250. It is definitely a very good way to see like the diversity of Arizona going from the desert floor all the way up to the Alpine where like it is colder than Calgary right now up there. But just just seeing the landscape change uh, right before your very eyes, it's very surreal. And when he says that it's colder than in Canada, he meant it those days. I checked the weather for the night that Leo went over Mount Eldon on Flagstaff's east side, which is the last big climb in the Cocodona. With wind chill, it was in the single digits that night. And since he'd had some time to scarf a hamburger and recover a little at this point, I asked him what it felt like to cross the finish line. Ah, uh, strangely alive. That's that's how I would describe it. Yeah, yeah. Seemingly, well, I, I don't know. I'm I'm of the school of thought that when you put yourselves through a chance of peril, you feel the most alive. And yeah, that's basically how I felt crossing that finish line. <laughs> An interesting way to put that. I I like that strangely alive. <laughs> yeah, really. And Leo was pretty similar to most runners I talked to. Uh, my favorite conversation with any of the runners happened when I first arrived. So there was a guy sitting on the ground near the finish line, and he had a friend crouched next to him. The guy who was sitting was Dominic Grossman. Uh, I finished about an hour ago, and I've literally been sitting in the spot. I ate a hamburger. That's it. And uh, his buddy who was next to him, Andy Pearson. I finished uh, last night around 7, like 14 hours ago and uh, went to a hotel, took a shower and a bath, and then proceeded to cramp aggressively in my bed and sweat profusely even though the AC was cranked up, um, and just had wonderful sleep. Yeah. So they sound a bit alike. I'll do my best to tell you who's starting each statement because they kind of bounce back and forth off of each other. Dominic finished in just under 99 hours. Which is kind of a cool number, I guess. And I was uh, had to finish right before my kids had to go to school. At a very specific time, they had to be home at 7.45. So I finished, or they had to leave for school. So I finished and they were able to see me on the live stream. So what's it like to run for that length of time? Well, first off, I was a bit surprised to learn that it's not all running. They just try to keep going as long as they can. Andy goes first in this next soundbite. Sometimes we're running out there. Uh, sometimes we're hiking. Sometimes we're crawling, uh, literally crawling. Yeah. I crawled under some barbed wire at one point because I, I, 
I couldn't lift my legs to get over this like A-frame going over the barbed wire, so I literally had to like army crawl on the ground at one point just to like get under it. So you kind of, it's very animalistic. You like find yourself doing certain things. You're like, how did I get here? <laughs> well, you said the goal was to keep going. So what keeps them going other than the hamburgers and of course the promise of Waffle House? Yeah. Well, Andy said it can be hard to keep that motivation. And one thing that was good for him was thinking about his children. My kids are two and four years old, and they'd be at the aid stations. And I was just always looking forward. That was like the best thing, coming in an aid station and knowing that they didn't care that I was tired or hungry or whatever. That They were just going to tell me what they thought, what they were feeling. And uh, I came in feeling really bad for myself. Um, I'd really overheated on one part of the course early on and coming to the Crown King. And my little two-year-old, she hit her chin. She started crying about her chin. And then I started pointing out my head that my head was really hot and I didn't feel good. And we just sat and held each other and gave each other a hug and cried a little bit. And then, we, and then she looked at me and she said, all better? I said, yeah, all better. And evidently shedding a tear isn't that uncommon for runners on the course. Uh, Dominic had his own moment. I, at one point, I was crossing a street outside of the Flagstaff and some car was turning and they just yelled out the window, they're like, you're doing great, or so, it was something like that. And it was just a total stranger that I don't think was involved in the race or anything. It was just like a person saying a kind word. And then, like, immediately after, this other car was turning, and they just beeped their horn and waved. It's always nice when people are in, that are in the race or crews, they'll always see words of encouragement, but someone who was just a total random stranger who didn't know what I was doing but offered the kind word, I just, like, started bawling. I was just running and crying, and I couldn't stop crying, and I was like, this is so weird. It's so beautiful. Uh, so that was kind of a fun moment, I guess. I was like, I hope this doesn't happen again because I can't spare the moisture. <laughs> so we heard about Andy's post-race night earlier. What's it like to be done with a race like this? Well, I'll say these guys were both oddly giddy. Now, I don't know if they're normally kind of energetic and happy-go-lucky, but they were really fun to talk to. It was a great conversation. Uh, Unsurprisingly, talk of food was a frequent topic for anyone I talked to who had finished the race. When you're between aid stations for like five plus hours, you don't get to like Uber Eats something or just, you know, get in your car and go get something. So the fact that like if I want pizza or a salad, it's immediately, it's like blowing my mind with that luxury that I can just have something that I want rather than, well, I have to walk for another six hours to get the thing that I need. Yeah. It's good. It gives you, like, perspective and it helps you appreciate stuff. I mean, I think that's ultimately, like, why we do it in a way is it, it just offers a totally different perspective from what people get. And, like, I don't do, like, psychedelics, but I think it's a similar kind of experience where you're kind of on the edge of human experience and what's out there and it kind of you walk away with a totally new look at the whole world afterwards which is really cool and sticks with you a good way to re recognize that you need sleep is how often you started to hallucinate there, there's a ratio between how much sleep you need and how much you're hallucinating uh, I definitely had points where because my kids are about the height of tree stumps and I'd be like you know five six miles out from my aid station but I'd be like 
Lindy? Goldie? What are you doing here? And if I was doing that every 10 minutes, I was like, oh, I really need to sleep. If I was doing it every hour, I think, okay, all right. But every 10 minutes, I was like, I'm on the verge of collapse. And that is really what I heard a lot about why these people were out there. That shift in perspective, not so much the hallucinating. Uh, people said that, yes, being in nature is great and it's an utterly beautiful trail to run. But it really helped them change how they see the world. Well, Zach, thanks for telling us about this race. And I understand this isn't the only extreme race we'll be hearing about today. What's next? Well, Tony, it turns out that this was not the only endurance event happening that week in Arizona. There's also a multi-day bike race that crossed basically the entire state from west to east. It's a sport called bikepacking, and I talked with Dana Ernst, who helped run that race. We talked earlier this week, just after the completion of another bikepacking race in northern Arizona that's his baby, called Pinions and Pines. And we met up at a downtown Flagstaff cafe where he and two people who completed the race the day before, Lindsay Knoll and Spencer Holmes, were having breakfast with Dana. We were sitting outside because evidently spending a few days outside wasn't enough for these folks. So some quick apologies for the sound of cars and trains passing by. Uh, Dana is going to start us off by basically giving us a description of what exactly bikepacking is, and you'll hear from Spencer after that, then Lindsay. Uh, really loosely speaking, bikepacking sort of falls kind of into two categories. I mean, there's a lot of people that just go out for adventures, maybe with some friends or solo, maybe on a designated route, maybe not. They might be out for two days, they might be out for weeks at a time, just having an adventure. And then occasionally there's events or sort of informal races where a bunch of people get together and all start together following it, usually a designated course and try and just get back safe and sound as quickly as possible. Uh, some people are going really fast and not sleeping at all. Other people are out there for days and days at a time, taking their time, um, sleeping lots. It just kind of varies, but we're all sort of out there doing the same thing. So with this most recent race that you just did, uh how, how long were, were you two out there? How long did it take, or what was the distance that you did and how long did it take? Um, we did a 300 course and we were out there for probably about three days and 12 hours. Were you doing the camping thing or were you more just going, get it done? That's a good question. Um, my mentality was to go as fast as I could, but the way the race turned out this year, the first night at midnight, I was in Camp Verde, and Spencer was too, so we, we shared a hotel room, actually. And then the next day, we hit a rainstorm, right when sort of the race imploded a little bit in terms of uh, all the riders scattering in different directions. Uh, and we were at a lodge, sort of in the middle of post-rainstorm, and so we ended up staying in a lodge that night so we called ourselves Team Glamping because all of a sudden we went to uh, sleeping in beds for a couple nights to try to like stay out there. Um, we did camp the third night. We have similar pace, so we ended up sort of leapfrogging each other and rode a bunch of the race together, which was sort of cool this year. Cool. So how did you get into this sport? What, what was it that drew you in? I feel like with a lot of people, 
it was watching Ride the Divide, you know, 10 plus years ago, and then thinking, this looks awesome. <laughs> and yeah, kind of just been a dream of mine to get into it. And then back in 2019, I was looking for something to do. And then I saw a post by Dana um, in the Arizona Trail Race Group promoting this event and thought this would be a perfect event to get into uh, racing with. Yes, this is the fourth time Spencer's been here. This is the fifth year we put the event on. This is the fourth time Spencer's finished well. Maybe one year you didn't finish. Uh, two years I didn't finish, so my uh, finishes to non-finishes ratio is now one-to-one. -one, Good, all right. was my goal for this year. Nice. A zero kill ratio. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like barring um, any catastrophic weather events, Pennies and Pines is a really great event to really dip your feet into bikepack racing. Yeah, yeah, it's not quite the, you know, what, Arizona Trail Race, which is like 750 miles, and there's a portion that you have to backpack your yeah. bike through. Yeah. or uh, Right across Arizona. Yeah. yeah, that was just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Since you organized a few of these, what, what goes into the preparation side from setting up a race like this? Well, I think for organizers that put on these races, I think there's kind of a, a bunch of different levels that people can kind of get involved, like how much they want to prep for things. I would say I'm probably on the more involved side of preparation. Um, one of the things that is unique about Pinions and Pines versus most bikepacking races, I change the route every year. And so that requires a lot of sort of thought because I want to make sure that I'm not putting people on roads at certain times of day when there's going to be a lot of cars and trucks and you know, okay, I want to put this section of single track in, but are people going to be on it in the dark or versus the day? And so, I mean, sometimes I just put the route out there, but I've spent a lot of time sort of thinking about, like, where are people going to be? Like, what's the mud going to be like if it rains? And then every year I have someone design a patch and I order patches and then, you know, putting out the sign up. So, I mean, it's not, I would say it's a ton of work. I certainly love doing it, but it's probably more than people would imagine going out and checking out the course and making sure things are good to ride, looking for water sources and where are people going to eat. I mean, that's another thing I got to worry about is like how far apart are the places that people can resupply? Because I could just design a course that I think would be great, but if you've got 200 miles between where people are going to be able to get food, that's not going to work. What's usually traveling with you during a race? What, what all is on your bike with you? Some of that depends on your style of how fast you're planning to go or your current fitness level. So there are like, you're definitely carrying some kind of food and water. Like it doesn't matter how fast you're going, you need calories and you need fluids, right? Some people choose to carry sleep kits and some people are like, I'm gonna try to do this so fast that I'm not gonna stop and sleep. For this race, like personally, looking at the monsoon weather forecast we had this week, I, was, I decided to carry a tent and like full rain gear which is not something I've actually carried on previous bike pack races, either of those things. Um, but I wanted to be able to stay safe out there and be able to like survive and stay on course if we did get a rain event. Other things that you carry are like earbuds. I listen to music a lot of the time just to keep me going. Some toiletry items, small amounts of certain things. Um, lots of chamois butter. <laughs> and gosh. Repair kits, probably. Yeah, repair yeah. kits. for. I have a first aid kit I carry. Gosh, I have a whole long list of things. My brain is not really functioning at high <laughs> levels. But, you know, you try to go as light as you can, but it's always a balance of having enough gear so that you're safe and you have all the things you need versus not too much. So, like, before the race, I'm, like, 
thinking about like how do I cut another ounce out you know and then during the race I'm like I'm gonna carry this pickle up Mount Eldon because you know and it's like a pickle has zero calories and it's like super heavy but I don't care at that point I'm like who cares about the six ounces of this giant pickle I mean it's got <laughs> potassium it's got electrolytes it does. well there's a know? reason to carry pickles they'll save you yeah, um, but yeah, then I didn't even eat it. <laughs> I carried it up and over. It's in my bag still. That's hysterical. <laughs> when you're out on a bike for three plus days at a time, what's going through your brain? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. For I feel like for me, one thing I do like about bikepack racing is it kind of like forces you to be in the present and think about, okay, so... What what what's ahead of me in the next five miles, and how long do I think that's gonna take? But I mean, there are times where I'm riding at you know 9 p.m. at night, and uh, "Say It Ain't So" by Weezer comes to my head, and I try to sing that. <laughs> yeah, you, you just hear it on a loop, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think it's one thing I do like about doing these long backpack races. You can just be yourself, be goofy, have a great time out there. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting is that it kind of depends on whether you're with someone or not at certain times. And, like, you go through the full range of emotions throughout a day. I mean, you could be at your lowest low and just pushing your bike when you'd rather be riding. And then, you know, an hour later, you could feel absolutely fantastic. And if you did all that again and you had someone around, it could be, like, a completely different experience. And so, like... Yeah, it's just like you kind of just have to roll with the punches. Anybody that's having trouble sort of like embracing how they're feeling in that moment, it, it can be a big struggle. Um, and then it's like you're doing that for a really long period of time. So you kind of like just get, you practice it, so to speak, and then you kind of get better at it. Um, I mean, the thing I've learned now is like if you're feeling kind of crappy, it'll go away. You kind of just, just deal with it. Yeah, as long as you keep eating and drinking it'll like eventually change that was like advice I got a bunch of years ago doing a 24-hour race and it's so true like if you but if you don't you can start feeling way worse that's <laughs> but true. you have and, to and get calories and, and you have to kind of like plan in advance for that right like I'm like pretty militant about making sure I'm eating at least 250 calories per hour early on when I don't even really want to eat and I don't think that I have to because I know that's going to set me up for success maybe 24 hours later uh, so Dana how did you go from you know obviously from what you said you've done races before how did you get into the organizing side of things i love flagstaff and where we live and i've been mountain biking here for a really long time and i love this area and then when i got into bike packing i was like man we should we should have an event here well i guess like well i guess i'll put on an event and so i wanted to sort of put together something that could I could use to train for the Arizona Trail 300 or the Colorado Trail Race. Um, and I just wanted to sort of showcase the beautiful, wide variety of terrain that we have here. And then I like exploring new things, which is one of my main motivations for changing the route every year. It'd be, I'd probably get a little bit bored just using the same course over and over again. So, But changing it every year, it forces me to get out and explore and check out areas I've never been. So I really like doing that. I'm running low on questions here. What, what is there that you think people need to know about bikepacking, about either from the sports side or just as an activity, a way to get out there and enjoy some nature? It's pretty intimidating, I think, to get started with. I mean, most of us have pretty fancy gear, but you don't really need that fancy gear to get started. And if someone's sort of interested in trying to just get out and explore, you can see a lot of terrain on your bicycle, way more than you could if you were walking. 
And you don't need that much fancy gear to sort of just get out. So I would encourage people to just try and get out for an overnight and figure out how to carry stuff on their bike and figure out what they need. And if they get into it, they can over time sort of invest money in picking up some of the gear that, you know, fits on your bike and get lighter stuff. But it doesn't have to be all that fancy. It's certainly a lot easier to carry lightweight stuff. But yeah, just get out and have an adventure. And it doesn't have to be a race. Uh, just get out and explore your own backyard. It's fantastic. Yeah, I definitely agree with Dana. Um, start small and kind of work from there. And I have friends who even race on 90s specialized hardtails and they're able to do pretty well. So yeah, it, don't, don't let yourself get intimidated by how expensive it is in the beginning. And you can just start small and move up from there. And the cool thing about it is once you're able to do it for a night, it's not much harder to do it for another. And then kind of spill from there. Well, thanks for sitting down and chatting with me today. Absolutely. You're welcome. Yeah. That was Dana Ernst, a bike pack racer and race organizer, and bike pack racers Lindsay Knoll and Spencer Holmes, speaking with producer Zach Ziegler. And that does it for this episode of More Than a Game. Join us next time as we begin a series looking at the importance of baseball in Arizona's border communities. The show is produced and mixed by Zach Ziegler. Our news director is Christopher Conover. Our logo was designed by A.C. Swedberg. Thanks to our marketing team for their help in launching this podcast. This show is part of the ACPM podcast family. You can find all of our podcasts, news, and video productions at azpm.org. I'm Tony Perkins. See you next time.